Morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Wish I got extra sleep. I just woke up at four instead of five. What's the, <laughs> the curse of oldness? Anyway, uh, open your Bibles, Daniel chapter 11. I just wanted to let you know the plan for the next couple weeks. So next week, I will not be here. Oh, come on. Uh, my newest grandson is being dedicated at his church in Redlands, and so well, Christine and I will go there in the morning, and Brian will be preaching. Give it up for Brian. Right, okay, thanks. And uh, wait, Hebrews, right? Hebrews something, Brian? Hebrews 12, so prepare for that. And then the following week, the 20th, uh, we are final Sunday in the book of Daniel. So cheer or boo, whatever you want for that. I'm, I'm a little, little excited to be, have that completed. And uh, just, just for those out here, maybe, maybe you've wanted to invite somebody to church over the past couple of months, and you're going, man, this Daniel stuff's pretty tough. I'm not sure how it would go. Well, starting the 27th, we start Advent. Very clear, very Jesus-focused for four weeks of Advent and then leading into Christmas. So uh, if you've been thinking about inviting people, starting the 27th would be a great time to do that. Don't do it. Well, you can do it when Brian preaches, but then the, the 20th, no. Anyway, we're approaching the end of the book, right? And we're in the midst of Daniel's final vision. This vision comes at the beginning of the third year of uh, the reign of King Cyrus, 536 B.C., and it's recorded in chapters 10 through chapter 12, uh, 12, the last book, I mean the last chapter of the book. And so in review, in chapter 10, we saw that this vision comes in response to Daniel's fasting, mourning, and prayer for his people. If you remember, in the first year of King Cyrus, uh, 539 B.C., he had decreed that the Jews who were living in exile, taken in exile by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, uh, could return to their land. They could rebuild their temple. They could rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, but if you look at Ezra, who records the historical portion of that, you'll find out that once they uh, got back to the land, they began to experience great opposition from people that had come to the land and people surrounding. The opposition was so fierce that they were forced to stop uh, the rebuilding efforts of the temple. It took them 15 years to rebuild the temple, and they were just trying to survive. And so Daniel, now in his 80s, from Babylon, is fasting and praying for his fellow Jews in Judea. Chapter 10 also introduces us to the messenger, the messenger of this vision. He was a holy, glorious, heavenly being, either an angel or maybe even the pre-incarnate Christ, sent by God to Daniel in response to his prayers. But on his way to Daniel, he was delayed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, a powerful demonic being, right? We saw that uh, two weeks ago, right? However, after 21 days, three weeks, the time of Daniel's fasting and prayer, the messenger was helped by Michael the archangel. He, the messenger, then goes to Daniel and tells him a number of things, but he tells him the purpose of his coming. In verse 14 of chapter 10, he says, to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is four days yet to come. Daniel's given this prophetic vision of the future the future of his people, and it's recorded in chapters 11 and 12. Now, for us, this prophecy, this vision, is really history written in advance. That's what these past two messages, what I've titled them last week and this week. We can look back and see how uh, this prophecy was fulfilled in the history of Israel. So it's prophecy for Daniel and the people of his day, and it's history for us as we look back. Last week, we looked at the first part of this vision found in chapter 11, verses 2 through 20. And from our vantage point, looking back at history, uh, here are some highlights that we saw. The vision begins with Cyrus, 
who was ruling the Medo-Persian Empire during Daniel's time, and Daniel was serving in his court. Quickly, it then moves through the Medo-Persian rulers, landing for a minute on Xerxes I, who was the husband of Esther, and who ruled at the, really the pinnacle, the high point of the Medo-Persian Empire. Next, it focuses on Alexander the Great, who conquered the Medo-Persian Empire and established the Greek Empire. And then it moves to Alexander's four generals, who divided his kingdom when he died in 323 BC. And finally, it focuses, the bulk of it, focuses on two of those four generals and their subsequent kingdoms. Ptolemy, who established a kingdom in the south, Egypt, and Seleucus, who established a kingdom in the north, uh, Syria, Babylon. From verses 5 to verses 20, the prophetic vision sort of accurately details, not with names, but talking about the king of the north, the king of the south, what happens between them, between these two kingdoms, ending with the assassination of Seleucus IV in 175 BC. Here's a map that we looked at last week. Does it have the arrow? All right. I wish I could see that far. What? Siri's going to help us again. I don't know what's going on. If you notice again, stuck between those two empires, uh, who were almost continually at war with one another, is the glorious land, is what it's called in Daniel's vision, uh, Israel. And this is why these kingdoms uh, were the focus of Daniel's vision. There's lots of things going on in the world, uh, things on other sides of the world that we have no idea about, but this is the focus that we are focused on, that the, the, the Daniel's vision focuses on. The prophetic vision is about what will happen to Daniel's people. And during the third and second centuries, these two kingdoms in conflict had a great impact on the Jewish people. So from a historical perspective, uh, that's the first part of Daniel's vision. So you can read through it, and I sort of uh, outlined it here for you. Now today, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 11, we come to the vision's second part. And the reason I and others divide this vision at, verse, at the end of verse 20 is because from verses 6 to 20, the focus is on the conflict between the kingdoms of the north and the south, the uh, Seleucids and the Ptolemies. But beginning in verse 21, the focus shifts to one man who is referred to, and this is our first point for today, a contemptible person. Maybe you know somebody like that. I don't know. Anyway, can't be as bad as this guy, I don't think. If you remember from last week, historically, we ended with the poisoning of Seleucus IV by his tax collector. So Seleucus, the king of the north, dies. And then beginning in verse 21, we read, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty was not, has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So who is this contemptible person? Well, if you were with us for our study of Daniel chapter 8, you guys remember that? You might remember uh, the, the little horn with great power. His name was Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. He named himself Epiphanes, uh, which means God manifest. And he was the brother of Seleucus IV and succeeded him on the throne. Antiochus was not of royal majesty. He was not the heir to his, his brother's throne. Uh, Seleucus's son was. But when his father died, Seleucus's son... So when Seleucus died, uh, the son was imprisoned in Rome. So Antiochus took the opportunity to usurp the throne. He gained it through flatteries by paying people to support him. And that's just the beginning. Verse 22, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Antiochus started with limited support, but his power generally grew. Uh, it grew over time. He made alliances, but he kept them only as long as it suited him. Those who tried to resist him were swept away, including the prince of the covenant. Now, some people believe this uh, prince of the covenant referred here was Ptolemy the, 
sixth, right, king of the south, who Antiochus made an alliance with, broke the alliance, made alliances with others. While, while others see the prince as the Jewish high priest, Onesus, Onias III, Antiochus was hell-bent on Hellenizing, we talked about this in chapter 8, forcing the Greek culture throughout his empire. This involved the adoption of, of Greek customs and practices that were antithetical. They were against the law of God. Onias vainly attempted to resist this Hellenization, but he was removed from office and replaced by a more uh, compliant high priest. Verse 24, without warning, he, Antiochus, shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers had done, scattering among them plunder, spoils, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. So during Antiochus' reign, there was much conflict between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, the north and the south, the kings of the north and south. And in the beginning, Antiochus is overwhelmingly victorious. He succeeds where former kings, his fathers and fathers' fathers, had not, to the point where the king of the south shall not stand. Verse 26 continues to recount Antiochus's victories. Even those who eat his food shall break him. This is, you know, if you follow along, the, the he here, the his, is the king of the south. During Antiochus's reign, the king of the south's own people, his advisors, would turn against him. His, the king of the south's army, shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their heart shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. So Antiochus achieves great victories in the south, in Egypt. He then makes an alliance, a deal with the Ptolemies. There's just all this intrigue going on. We can't go into all the details, but there's one Ptolemy wants to be the king, and the other's the king, and he makes an alliance with the one, and they try to take over from the other. Anyway. Neither king in this alliance intended to keep it. They were speaking evil lies. They were using one another. Verse 28, And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. So Antiochus returned to his land, so in the north, with great wealth, because of his victories in Egypt. And on his way home, he stopped in Palestine, the name of the day, where he finds an insurrection taking place. The people of God are rebelling against Antiochus's Hellenization orders, and he dealt ruthlessly with them. His heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant. The Holy Covenant, the covenant is usually talking about uh, the, the people of God. He killed 80,000 men, women, and children, plundered the temple, and returned home. The Jews were outraged at his brutality and began a full-fledged revolt generally called the, the Maccabean Revolt. So that's just the historical. We talked about the books of Maccabees that records this time in history. This shows why Antiochus gets the spotlight in this vision, right? Because he had a great negative impact on Daniel's people, the people of God. He would oppress and persecute and kill them like no other ruler before him. Verse 29, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be his time, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So, Antiochus, again, he's in the north. He heads down to Egypt to do some more plundering and warfare and uh, things like that, but it doesn't go like it's gone in the past. Because of the rising Mediterranean power of the day, the Romans, those Roman guys, the ships of Kittim shall come against him. Kittim is the ancient name for Cyprus, 
but it came to be used for the lands in the Mediterranean Sea area in general, specifically the Romans. So the Romans became involved in the dispute between Antiochus and Egypt. The Roman delegate Gaius Pompilius Lanus faced down Antiochus as he approached Alexandria. He drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus, insisting that he agreed to withdraw from Egypt before he left the circle. Antiochus understood the power of Rome, having spent his childhood in Rome as a political hostage. So humiliated, he was forced to withdraw. And it seems after this defeat, he is so enraged that he needed to find someone weaker than him to pick on. So he sends his chief tax collector with an army ahead to Jerusalem. At first, the tax man appears to come in peace. But on the Sabbath, he began having people killed and plundered the city, the people who were in revolt, revolt against Antiochus's policies. He took action against the Holy Covenant. He also rewarded those Jews who supported Antiochus's Hellenistic policies. He paid attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And it gets worse. Verse 31, forces... From him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. Okay. When Antiochus himself arrived in Jerusalem, he stormed the city and he slaughtered many. He also built a fortress for his troops. He banned Jewish practices such as circumcision and eliminated the regular daily offerings at the temple, offering pig's flesh on the altar instead. He desecrated the Holy of Holies and dedicated the temple to the worship of Zeus. Some of the Jews, uh, the Jewish people, caved under the pressure and collaborated with his forces, while others faithfully resisted him at great personal cost, falling by the sword or being burnt alive. Verse 35, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the end of, excuse me, the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. The wise who stumble probably refers to true believers who would die in this persecution. But through this persecution, they would be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end. The time of the end may refer to the final judgment or to the end of the persecution itself. It ended with Antiochus's death in 164 BC while he was on a campaign in Persia. Okay, take a deep breath. No, no, please, no. So that's verses 21 through 35, 15 verses of Daniel's prophetic historical vision. And it's, I'm sort of blowing through it, sort of just giving you the highlights, showing how it relates to actual, uh, the historical accounts, how it worked out. And most Bible scholars agree that this is specifically focusing on Antiochus Epiphanes. But when, uh, but when we come to verse 36, there's some disagreement. Some believe what follows, since there's no real transition, continues to speak of Antiochus. While others believe that as we progress through the vision, there's sort of this transition in these verses, these, these upcoming three or four verses, uh, towards the conclusion of the prophecy... There's a growing sense that even while the vision addresses the situation under Antiochus, it sort of relates to Antiochus, but it's not just about Antiochus, but someone even worse. He is, second point, a conceited, contemptuous king. Two C's in one point. It's like, sort of like double. He gets double. He's double trouble, if you will. Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Antiochus was powerful. 
able to do as he wills up to a point. But as we've seen, the power of the Romans was far greater than his as he had to retreat from Egypt in humiliation. Also, Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest, certainly viewed himself as a god, but the god complex that he had was common to many ancient rulers. And notice also that this king has a real problem with the god of gods. He speaks astonishing or terrible things against the one true God. Verse 37, He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and to divide the land for a price. So Antiochus paid no attention to the gods of his fathers, only in the sense that his fathers worshipped Apollo and he chose to worship Zeus, a god who embodied military strength, uh, the god of the fortresses maybe. And he paid no attention to the one beloved by women, which is probably a reference to the the worship of the god Adonis, which was common in Egypt at the time. Yet there seems to be more here. While Antiochus did magnify himself, he still paid attention to Zeus, who was part of the Greek pantheon of gods, uh, who his fathers knew. Also, there's no indication that Antiochus worshipped or gained help from a foreign god. That's sort of obscure. We're not sure what that means. So even though aspects of Daniel 11, 36 through 39 fit Antiochus, the passage as a whole seems to be speaking of a king who will be larger and more important, uh, a more important version. So a, a type of Antiochus, more than Antiochus, perhaps because Antiochus forms sort of this model which is com uh, to compare to this ultimate ruler this coming king who will truly do as he wills, who will deal with, attack the strongest fortresses and make his followers rulers over many. Now, as we come to verse 40 through 45, it seems very unlikely that, what we, that we're still talking about Antiochus here. So that those transitions between 37, 39, a little bit Antiochus, now we're moving farther away. Uh, Verse 40 begins, at the end of time, at the time of the end, excuse me, at the time of the end. Now, as we've talked about this phrase before, it shows up at several places in Daniel. It doesn't have to mean the end of history. It can mean the end of a historical period, the fulfillment of a prophecy, but it can also mean at the end of time, at the end of history. That's what many interpreters take uh, this verse to be, specifically because, and we'll see this when we get to verse 12, it does move to verse, in, in, I'm sorry, chapter 12, it does move us to the end of history in chapter 12. That's what we're about to, so that's what we're about to look at. It looks forward to a, the time of the end, prior to the second coming of Christ, possibly. So, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, this uh, contemptuous king. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. So now it's the king of the north and the south are both coming against him. With chariots and horsemen, with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Amorites." So at the time of the end, whatever, whenever that is, there's this major battle where armies will come from the north and the south to attack this powerful ruler in the glorious land, the land of Israel. And notice the scope of the battle. Tens of thousands shall fall. And then there's the, at the end, Edom and Moab, the main parts of Egypt, will, Amorites will escape from his hand possibly because of their connection with Israel, maybe because they're just out of the way. Verse 42, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. 
and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. This king seems to have more power than Antiochus, stretching his rule across countries, confiscating treasures, not only in Egypt, but Libya and Cush, lands to the south of Egypt. Verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now, one striking difference between the king and Antiochus lies in the events surrounding the king's death, which don't fit with what we know of the death of Antiochus. Antiochus died during a a minor campaign in Persia in 164 BC, as we noted, not between the sea and Jerusalem after a grand and successful assault on Egypt. So again, these verses seem to be looking for a greater fulfillment than that is yet to come. So who is this conceited, contemptuous king? Again, unlikely that it's Antiochus, but it's clearly someone like Antiochus. And since the events described do not, don't really fit any known king in history that we're aware of, it's probably referring to the time of the end, the end of history. And therefore, this conceited, contemptuous king probably, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, saying this definitely, there are different interpretations, but probably refers to the Antichrist described in the book of Revelation. This final ruler who will oppose God and his people and will ultimately be destroyed. So it seems as the book of Revelation tells us, history will not conclude until the coming of another Antiochus-like king. Now, the vision continues into chapter 12, and we'll look at the first three verses in our next point as we consider what this prophetic... So that's the sort of the end of the major historical portion there. But we want to know what is this, uh, the, this coming, the dark days, so it, the, there's Antiochus the fourth, and then this other evil king. What does that have to say to us? What, is it, what does it have to say to Daniel. And I believe the main message God has for us involves faithful living in trying times. Faithful living in trying times. Again, this vision comes in response, uh, if you remember, to Daniel's mourning, fasting, and praying. He's praying for his people. He's clearly troubled by the trials they're experiencing, okay? So we're going to slow down here. You know, did you guys notice that? Last part, so we're kind of fast. Yeah, okay, slow down. Because it's sort of, okay, you can read it. Again, get the ESV, study Bible, sort of has it laid out pretty well, the history there. But I want us to see, uh, the point is, there these kingdoms, these rulers, both Antiochus, this other king, they're pressing in on the people of God. They're causing trying times for the people of God. And there's some things that come out in this passage that we'll look at that help us discover how to live faithfully in trying times. So Daniel, fasting and praying for his people who are experiencing trying times, right? And the Lord responds with this look into the future that we've seen last week, we saw this week. Showing Daniel that there are even more trying times to come. On the one hand, maybe not very comforting, right? But on the other hand, it does something uh, that we, for us and for Daniel, that we often can lack. It gives us perspective. The other day, my wife was sharing with me about her struggles to write a test for her math class. So she teaches math in high school. She's just struggling not quite in tears, but she's struggling with writing this test. And in my great wisdom, just having studied Daniel 11, I said something like, well, at least you don't live in North Korea where they kill you for being a Christian. Okay, That's, that was her reaction. What? After she punched me, no, not really. Uh, after she got over the initial shock of my insensitivity, She did admit that thinking about the much greater suffering of others gave her a new perspective on her own 
problems. So are you troubled with, by problems, maybe problems you're facing? Cheer up. It could get worse, right? There are believers in many parts of the world today. I mean, what is today? The, how do you say, the National Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. There's a reason we have a National Day for the Persecuted Church, Prayer for the Persecuted Church, because there's a persecuted church. There are believers in many parts of the world today whose lives are being turned upside down. Their possessions are being confiscated. Their family members are being kidnapped and enslaved. They're faithfully laying down their lives as godless rulers of this world go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. This doesn't, it doesn't change, right? It was happening in Daniel's day. It happened after Daniel's day, and it continues to happen today. Does that put things in perspective? If God's people in other times and places in this world are being destroyed for their faith, then what do we really have to complain about? Yet Daniel 11 doesn't simply want us to be ashamed of our grumblings over our first world problems. It also wants to teach us how to live faithfully in the midst of any trials we experience, great or small. Because our trials, though they might be smaller, though some might be great as well, are our trials. They're the things that we have to deal with. They're the things that God has chosen to allow us to experience. And the first and foundational and obvious lesson we see in this, if you're going to live faithfully in trying times, you must know God. I said it was obvious, but it's also of great importance. In verse 32 we read, He, Antiochus, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. There are always those in in the Jew, within the Jewish people, in Antiochus' day, within the church today, there are always those who will avoid trials at any cost. They can easily be seduced, tempted away from their so-called faith. Faithful living goes out the window if it means experiencing difficulties of any kind. They're covenant violators, and no matter what they say, they clearly do not know God. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now we'll talk more about standing firm and taking action in our next point. But notice, it's knowing God, trusting in His sovereign power, believing, as we've seen over the past several weeks, believing that He's in control of history and therefore He's in control of your life. Knowing that the God who knows you and loves you is working for your good, results in your ability to stand firm and take action even during life's challenges, during trying times. I want us to see in Daniel 11 that history is not a series of random coincidences, nor is it just the account of the struggles of those who are long dead, including good-for-nothing men like Antiochus. Rather, history is the account of God's hand accomplishing His sovereign purposes in and through the lives of those who know Him in every era, in every time. So the question is, do you know Him? Let me give you a test. I mean, not a... I mean, a yeah, a test. That you can think about. You don't have to raise your hand. When you face trials of various kinds, think about your your life and facing trials. When you face trials, where do you turn? Who do you trust? Do you trust in God that He's in control in this difficult time? It's easy to trust God when things are going well. Do you trust God when things are not going so well? Do you believe that God is sovereign, sovereignly at work in your life for your good during this trial? And therefore, you're able to take, stand firm you're able to take action. Or if, if trials, if experiencing trials in your life leads only to depression, self-pity, and a desperate need to escape, to get, away, get out of this trial, then you might consider reevaluating your relationship with God. Even calling upon Him anew that through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, 
you might truly enter into this covenant relationship with him. So the first lesson for faithful living in trying times is to know, to trust, to believe in God. Believing that this trial is for your good. Being able to, as James says, to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Specifically believing that he's at work, at work for you in the midst of the trial. And the second lesson follows, and it's also obvious, if you're going to live faithfully in trying times, you must uh, live faithfully. You must obey God. Again, in the days of Antiochus, some would be seduced or pressured into abandoning the, the covenant and going over to the dark side, right? Again, verse 32, he, sh- he, Antiochus, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Knowing God, having relationship with God, uh, being filled with the Spirit of God empowers us to stand firm and take action. And I take stand, that to mean we stand firm in our convictions, our convictions about who God is, our convictions about what He's done for us. And we take action. We live out those convictions. We obey God. We do what He tells us. Through knowing God, having this real covenant relationship with God, we can obey Him, even in trying times, especially in trying times. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Those who know the Lord, those who love the Lord will stand firm and take action. They will keep His commandments. They will fight the good fight of faith. They will resist the seductive forces of this world. Whether those forces are someone like Antiochus or anyone who's opposed to God. And just to be clear, our knowing and obeying the Lord is not a ticket to escaping uh, persecution, trials, difficulties. It doesn't mean we'll escape the hardships and persecutions of this world. In fact, knowing and obeying, I, uh, uh, I hate to tell you this, I mean, I don't, but I'm, you might not like it. The, the fact that you know and obey the Lord will increase your chances of persecution, of trials. As Paul wrote to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in one way or another. Everyone who obeys God will experience persecution because the world hates you. Like the people of Daniel's day who were resisting the Hellenization the Greekifying of their world. When we resist the secular, secularization, the being secular, the rejection of God, that there is a God, when we, when we stand against those forces, people will hate us. We'll face op- opposition. We may, as many before us have, be called to lay down our lives for what we believe. It hasn't come yet. For us, it has for many others throughout history and in our world today. And if by standing firm and taking action, resisting evil results in the ultimate sacrifice, the world will call it foolishness. But the Lord calls it wisdom. Daniel 11.33 we read, And the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. The wise, those who stand firm and take action, obeying God, resisting evil, by their stance, their actions will make many understand. It will be a witness to people around them. Throughout church history, those who went to death for their faith have been a witness There are stories of guards in the Roman times, you know, leading people to faith and then coming to faith, leading Christians to death and then coming to faith themselves by that witness. So it could lead to death, but it leads to witnessing to some, but it will also result in sacrifice, death by sword or flame, captivity and plunder. And we ask, how can such horrors be wise? That's what God says. They're wise. It's wise because the persecutor's fire has no power to inflict ultimate harm on the believer. Verse 35, Daniel 11. 
Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it, is, it will still come at the appointed time. The fire of persecution is how God's people are refined and purified, made spotless, understanding that even the worst trials, even the trials that lead to death, are for our good, should help us have the right perspective on history, especially the history we're living right now. If history is just a continual set of random circumstances, which is what many in the world believe, then faithful suffering has no possible meaning. The thing to do would be to go along to get along, right? It's, it's a wasted life that could have been better spent pursuing pleasures instead. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this life is all there is, then persecuted believers are being shortchanged. They're not being very wise, right? They're missing out on much of what life has to offer. But if history is actually following God's predetermined course to the final end, then our obedience is filled with wisdom and meaning. I think that's what is being reinforced in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. As the vision continues, it clearly moves to the end of history, to the final resurrection. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If, if there is a heaven to come in which earthly deeds will be judged and faithfulness to God, knowing and obeying God will be rewarded by everlasting life and disobedience to God will be punished with everlasting contempt, then those who are faithful to God even unto death have made the best and wisest choice possible. As Jim Elliott once said, not long before he was martyred by the Alka Indians in South America, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The hope of everlasting life makes our obedience, our faithfulness to God, even and especially in trying times, worthwhile and wise. Amen? So we're to know God, we're to obey God, and finally, third lesson, if you're going to live faithfully in trying times, you must pray to God. Again, obvious, but powerful. Daniel's vision as he sees into the heavenlies, teaches us that victory in this conflict is not won by, by the wise among God's people overcoming evil through their own efforts. Instead, victory comes when the heavenly host, sent by God, led by Michael the archangel, rise up to deliver the saints. In chapter 10, we saw the heavenly conflict in which Michael and others were engaged. And the first verse of chapter 12, Michael appears again. At that time, at the time of the end, at the time of this conceited, contemptuous king, the focus goes to Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered during a great time of distress. I think it's probably a future time that we haven't experienced. Brought on by this conceited, contemptuous king, Michael comes to protect the, and deliver the people of God. Everyone whose name is found written in the book. What's the book? The Lamb's Book of Life. We've seen it before. In chapter 10, we saw that our conflicts, our times of distress on earth are reflected in conflicts in heaven. And during these times, our protection and deliverance will come not from our own abilities, but from heaven, from God, from His angels. And I want us to remember our part. What's our part in this heavenly conflict? It's not just to pray, it's to pray. To pray, just as Daniel had been doing. 
Ian Dugitz writes, Prayer is the revolutionary activity by which weak, mortal creatures take our stand in the great cosmic battle and do our part to move heaven and earth towards God's final victory. In the light of the ultimate victory of God and the resurrection of the saints, the wise, those who know and obey God, will commit themselves to pray to God for that final victory to come soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Okay, let me just summarize. I got five minutes and close with a Christ-centered, eternal perspective on trying times. Sounds like a lot, but I'll be brief. There's an old saying, all good things must come to an end. Fortunately, the same thing is true for bad things. When he ruled, Antiochus Epiphanes was a powerful enemy of God's people, but his reign eventually came to an end. Tyrants rise and tyrants fall. Empires come, empires go. But the Lord's kingdom and his people, those he has redeemed by grace, endures forever. Our present circumstances, whatever they be, may be, whether they be good or bad, will pass away. Sooner or later, our lives will end. But those who've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ will be resurrected unto eternal life. Those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life will eternally enjoy God's glorious kingdom. But they, we will not live forever because of our own faithfulness or our own suffering. We have to understand that. There's no saving power in the blood of martyrs. There's no saving power in my blood or your blood. Those who enter heaven, whether as martyrs or not, do so through the power of the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation 12:11, we read, They triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of, his, of their testimony. Their testimony that we trust in the Lord Jesus. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They weren't willing to reject the Lord, even to save their own lives. It's because Christ suffered. They triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. It's because Christ suffered, died, and rose again that history has meaning and purpose. It's because Christ shed his blood for me and you that we can look forward to spend, spending eternity in his presence. And that reality should make any circumstance, any sacrifice God calls us to make in this life more than worthwhile. Do you believe in eternity? Do you believe what Christ offers our eternal heavenly home, secured by Jesus Christ, is the answer to the God of this world, Satan's seductions to give in to the ways of this world. Anticipating the joy of seeing our Savior's face, of being told, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest, of being transformed to be like Him, all those things that we'll experience is the answer to our present discouragement and difficulty and despair. So lift up your eyes from the trials and difficulties of this life and look to the glorious inheritance God has prepared for you in Christ Jesus. As Jesus said to his disciples, he says to you and me, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have not told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's the, that's the goal. That's the hope. Not the hope, oh, I really hope so. The surety that Christ has promised that He's coming back and He's going to take us to our new home. As you face this life, the battles, the seductions, the difficulties and trials that it includes, face it with a Christ-centered eternal perspective and do not let your hearts be troubled. Be encouraged, be strengthened by all Jesus has done for you in the past and prepared for you in the future. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much 
for your many blessings. Thank you that even in trials, even in difficult times, the things that we, we don't like, the things that we can run from, that we want to escape, you're at work. Lord, help us to have that perspective, knowing that you're seeking to refine us, to make us pure and holy in Christ, that we might enter into your presence for all eternity. Lord, give us that, that sure hope as we live in this world, as we face various trials, whatever our trials might be, as we pray for those who are facing maybe even more difficult trials. Father, give us that eternal perspective. This is only a short time. This is a limited time. But eternity is, is meant to be spent with you in your presence where there's pleasures and joys forevermore. Give us that understanding in Christ's name. Amen. Sean's going to come now and lead us in our time of communion. The first Sunday of the month, as is our practice here at Bridges, we will be um, having the Lord's Supper. If you are visiting with us and you are a, uh, a believer in Christ, you are a member of his body, you are welcome to share in with us, in, in, the, uh, in the meal with us, to partake of the uh, bread and the cup. If not, however, please, uh, when it comes around, just let it pass by. Uh, the reason being that this is not just a ritual or a ceremony that we uh, observe. It is a, an ordinance, a command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that as often as we do, we do so in remembrance of him. In fact, Paul, writing to the uh, Corinthian church, says that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is also a warning to us as believers to, when we do this, do so in a worthy manner, having examined ourselves and our hearts and with an understanding that it is not just a ritual or a ceremony. It is a ritual in the sense that we make a practice of it. We do it in a formal and proper way, but it is so much more than that. This being the um, International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians, according to Voice of the Martyrs, <laughs> as they named it, um, it is a recognition doing this that we are one body, and Christians around the world who drink the cup, who eat the bread, the body of Christ, it is a symbol of our unity, of our being part of that one body. So I'm going to go ahead and have the, uh, the ushers come forward, and um, we'll be singing a song while the uh, elements are being passed out. Um, be in prayer, be in, in song, be in worship, examine yourselves in preparation for the time that we will partake together.
with me. Dear Heavenly Fathers, with deep gratitude that we uh, receive these elements, Lord. With, with understanding, Lord, that it was your sacrifice that made, us, made it possible for each of us to be forgiven, that the gulf would be crossed that separated us from God. Lord, we pray that your grace would be bestowed upon us through this observance and this remembrance. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us drink from the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of worship this remembrance of your sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, your son. 
We thank you that he has called us to himself. We thank you that he invites us into himself. We thank you, Lord, that you have taken residence within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us this Sunday morning.